experience is one man's quest to see beyond the tumultuous period we're in and to envision what lies just beyond our grasp yet well within our reach welcome to larry ripkin's america trends where the future has arrived and it's just in time Welcome back to America Trends. I'm Larry Rifkin. The Endangered Species Act was passed 50-plus years ago. By most accounts, it's been hugely successful. But with climate disruption comes growing threats to biodiversity on the planet. Animals have no AC, after all. We have an expert with us today who has the history and the vision to tell us what we need to do to protect endangered species for the next 50 years. He'll be joining us right here on America Trends. With us on America Trends is Lowell Bear. He's a distinguished environmental attorney and historian. And he is also a person who has collected, along with Dr. John Organ and Christopher Siegel, a new addition to the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume 2, The Next 50 Years. And just to put it in context, the Endangered Species Act of 1973 is generally recognized, I think, around the world as the most important wildlife conservation law ever passed. And it's been a really critical protection for species, sometimes controversial, and it turns 50 years old this year in 2023. And I've got to ask you, the first 50 years, what on balance would you say about the impact of this act? Larry, it's been dramatic. It has two faces to it. It has become the most vilified of all conservation legislation ever enacted in this country. Conversely, it has been the most celebrated because of, of the impact that it's made. So it really has two faces to it. Okay, so when I hear someone say, well, you know, just to protect that little snail garter, we cannot mm -hmm. develop this property what should I think? The, the, that little snail darter is really part of the uh, whole universe of biodiversity. It is one of the many, many species within our planet and, and in, within this country that really man relies upon for his sustenance, his uh, survival, and, and, and his food, his drugs, and so forth. And it is just part of the whole and the whole has been protected by the whole being, the whole world of biodiversity is being protected by the Endangered Species Act. And it's looked upon as part of the whole. By law, the whole is to be protected. And it is just part of that whole. And uh, that's what the law is. Unless there is mitigation involved, your development cannot proceed. Far bigger question than I've just answered, Larry. Oh, undoubtedly, but we'll get into many aspects yep. of this. But I want to go back even to your first volume. 
where we talk about the Migratory Bird Treaty of 1918, that being yes, predicated on the last Carolina parakeet that died at the Cincinnati Zoo in February 21 of 1918. And it was really a fascinating story about the plume boom, where these different species of colorful birds were hunted at unsustainable rates, contributing to the drive. Some, like the Carolina parakeet, the United States' only native parrot, driven to extinction. And that really led to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and then ultimately that leading to the 1973 Endangered Species Act. Draw the line from one to the next. The um, 1918 Act was the second intervention by the federal government into our wildlife species in this country. The first was 1900, the Lacey Act. The second then was 1918. What it did is it laid the foundation when, when it went to Supreme Court and was contested it sustained itself because it the result of a treaty between the United States and Canada, England, which was controlled by England more back then than it is today. Then Mexico later became part of that treaty. But the Endangered Species Act uh, is also supported by multiple treaties, which gives it its constitutional uh, legs. However, the 1918 Act, was really a major intervention by Congress uh, and the federal government into species management, wildlife management. And the Endangered Species Act was the capstone of, of many years in between with smaller and more subtle uh, interventions, but not nearly as, as gigantic as the Endangered Species Act, similar to the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Their bookends, if you will. Okay, now I want to take us back to the 1800s, and most yep. people understand this history, that during the westward colonial expansion, it became more clear than ever that wildlife was not simply an unlimited resource. And let's talk about the American bison, for example. It once roamed the West in numbers of 50 to 60 million. And after that expansion and colonization, those numbers would drop to fewer than 100. So America saw this, and yet the federal government, not as strong nearly as it is today, uh, didn't really do a whole lot to protect that species. What did we learn from the bison story that is applicable today when many people say, again, there's extinction of many species because of climate change and so many other factors? That's true. There really are. Climate change is a major player now in the extinction of species. But I, I want to get back to your question on back in the 1800s to which you've just referred, it was not just the bison that was in trouble. Uh, the antelope were almost extinct as well. Massive e efforts were made by sportsmen and conservationists to protect both species, the bison and the, the antelope, and also the deer population, especially here in the east, not as much in the west. However, the elk in the west were also being slaughtered mercilessly without any, any governmental intervention at all. But what that did is that collective group of species that were facing extinction raised public awareness 
of the problem. They began to, to wake up and, and realize what was going on. There was a period, uh, you referred a moment ago to the, the plume boom. Mm-hmm. That was part of it as well with the ladies' hats and clothing being adorned by colorful uh, bird feathers, and not just from, only from the United States, but, but from throughout the world. There were major plume sales that were held uh, primarily in London and Paris to supply the world with, with these plumes. But collectively, all of that began to spell trouble for uh, the, the extinction of species, and people began to wake up and realize what was going on. You mentioned the parakeet uh, passenger pigeon likewise uh, faced a similar demise together with other other species as well. Going on during that period, moreover, was what we call the commercial hunting of ducks and geese and other uh, birds that were then sold in the public markets in the cities, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and so forth, primarily the eastern coast, uh, East Coast cities. Mm-hmm. And all of that then led to the concern about extinction. And just one of the byproducts of that was the 1819 Migratory Bird Treaty Act because uh, commercial hunting, they called it market hunting, kept uh, the shops and the um, um, the butchers' uh, stores filled with wild game all the time. And that's when laws began to be passed to control the hunting and uh, the mm, collection of these for uh, market the marketplace, if you will, and that was that was eventually then rooted out of existence. I referred earlier to the 1900 uh, Lacey Act. That was mm-hmm. part of the legislation that stopped uh, this uh, market hunting from continuing. Okay, so here the federal government had gotten involved 1900, 1918, 1973. And you say that between 1973 and 2023, the Endangered Species Act would experience several notable growing pains. Uh, There has not been any significant amendment to it since 1988, which is pretty remarkable. And you say when it was first written, and enforced. For the first 10, 15, 20 years, it was very top-down in its approach to the management of the species. What has changed over the years in terms of the implementation of the Act? The top-down approach was a result of the folks that drew it up way back then. There was an Act in 1966. There was another amendment to that Act in '69. And both of those then, the best parts of those were then wrapped into the 1973 law. The government back then, the the mentality of drafting legislation and enforcing legislation in Washington was very top down. It was, it, and it it was a function of the command and control mentality that, that resulted from World War II. And it all started uh, with that command and control mentality. And all of the presidents, starting with Harry Truman uh, right up to Bill Clinton, were all all veterans. And so they had a very, very strict command and control mentality when it came to uh, legislation uh, versus military work. And the Clinton administration, Bruce Babbitt specifically, he was his Secretary of Interior, realized uh, that... Um, the command and control approach 
cause nothing but war between the federal government and the citizens of this country, and especially industry. And so he realized it wasn't working. It just simply, that approach of, of a very hard-nosed command and control uh, mentality uh, just wasn't working at all. And the act held far more promise if it was managed in a different way. And so he came up with a, a, a variety of regulations, not legislation, because as you said, the last regulatory, the, the last piece of legislation of the only three major amendments that have occurred was 1988. Well, Clinton comes along in the 90s and recognizes you can't get anything through Congress. They're going to fight it and they're going to, going to, going to vilify further the act. So he took a regulatory approach to loosening the act and, and created a series of regulations that, for, that implemented the, the law in a different way, an easier way for landowners to live with. And they relaxed the, the way the standards were being enforced, very, very top-down in their enforcement. And so starting with the Clinton administration, there was a new light, a new approach to the way the Endangered Species Act was was being enforced. That yeah. resulted in all these safe harbor agreements, more collaboration right. with Fish and Wildlife, the Department of Defense, Environmental Defense Fund. Did that save the act to this point? In, in a sense, would it have been gutted under, say, uh, another president, George W. Bush or Donald Trump, mm-hmm. had that mm-hmm. flexibility not come into play? Absolutely. Absolutely, Larry. And, and to show you how deep resentment still, still runs with many congressmen, senators, and, and House, House and Senate both. In this session alone, this current session, there have been over 600 bills introduced that either gut the act, repeal it, or dumb it down to where it's meaningless. They're hmm. still trying to do that notwithstanding the, the enlightenment that came about in the in the 90s and continues to this day there's a there's a um, regulation out right now for for public uh, review and comment that uh, lightens up the way in which applications are received under the endangered species act for those various regulations that you just mentioned a few minutes ago like the like uh, the um, Safe Harbor Agreements, and others. Lowell Bear is with us. He's a distinguished environmental attorney and historian. He's written the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume 1, now Volume 2, the next 50 years. And it's a really fascinating look, and uh, it, you have contributions from so many thinkers, scholars, activists involved in this process the link between the last 50 years and the next 50 years, uh, you say that the real key is flexibility and collaborative conservation, working together rather than fighting. So how is that going to come about? Well, there were a group of folks in the South that were part of the forest industry, and they began to fashion a collaborative approach to dealing with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on endangered species issues. And they would work with them rather than fight them. Rather than go to court and fight them, they began to work with them 
and, and talk with them and find out from them what, what they might do in order to deal with species that were at risk in, in their areas, like the red-cockaded woodpecker. Well, out of that early type of dialogue, which began about 10 years ago, a, a group has been formed called Conservation Without Conflict. Conservation Without Conflict. And it has been it has been incorporated. It has a, an executive director. It's fu- funded, and it is working with various types of industries across the country to get them to be- better understand that working collaboratively with the government in these loosened regulations is far better to achieve the ends and, and the balance between conservation and progress and you know the progress of industrialization and and building and that sort of thing but isn't it a false choice i know somewhere i read as i'm reading around all your materials that that is often a false choice uh, the corporations will always say that you're really hindering us but on the other yeah. hand if we don't have a world that is pristine or to the degree we can make it then all of the impacts are going to be felt uh, in every sector is going to be felt by all their consumers, their workers, and so forth. I mean, I know I live in the Northeast, the industrial Northeast, and I've seen when corporations have walked away from their responsibilities, leaving it to government to clean up the mess. Well, here, Mm -hmm. at least with the Endangered Species Act, you're trying to, in some collaborative way now, address the process, you say that one of the solutions to any of the issues between growth and maintenance of a good environment is to work at the local level. So the question is, the local governments and state governments, I know the state governments are very much involved in the implementation of all this. The federal government doesn't have enough uh, safeguards or enough watchmen uh, to look over all of this and to protect. And every state is a little bit different in terms of the species they have within. So tell us where you think that process of local on up is right now. That that process uh, has been reinvigorated, if you will, by the collaboration concept. Let me back up to give you a little bit of an overview. When when the Endangered Species Act was passed in 73, it, it basically took away from the states any game management or control they had of a species that was listed as threatened or endangered. Well, since, since back to the colonial times, uh, when you look at states' rights in the Constitution, they had absolute authority, singular unilateral authority, over the management of their wildlife. And the federal government, as it related to endangered species that were specifically listed, took all that away. Huge, huge resentment. Uh, It was a real, it it has always been a real states' rights issue that that just just grinds between the states and the federal government. Uh, Things are getting better, but there has been real contention uh, once a species is listed because uh, here the, the federal government sits here in Washington and identifies the species at risk and lists it. Who has the burden then of, of recovering that species and dealing with it? The states. And they're not given enough money by Congress 
in order to carry out the the, the mandate of, of the, the mandate of seventy three. They the Congress in seventy three had a moral and ethical uh, responsibility. They said to pass this act, but they they really had never funded it properly for the states, and so it's been a constant constant battle uh, between the states and the federal government. Um, have to work together. It's getting better. It's getting better, but by golly, uh, the states are still somewhat crippled uh, by the, the primacy that the federal government has maintained over endangered species. Now, the forward to your volume two was written by Representative Debbie Dingell from Michigan and Senator Martin Heinrich, uh, the United States Senator from New Mexico. And they yes. are trying to unpack this uh, notion of recovering America's Wildlife Act, the successor, can we call it that, to the Endangered Species Act. The act itself, 50 years old, does not have to be renewed or does it? And what would this act do? The act stands on its own. It does not have to be renewed. However, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which is now in its fourth session of Congress, or sixth, I've lost track, gives to the states $1.4 billion per year for management of endangered species and species at risk. So this big issue of lack of funding, if we can get that law passed, is critical to the states to, to, to properly fund the, their management of endangered species and recovery of them. Now, why Debbie Dingle and, and, and uh, Martin Heinrich, they're the two champions in the Congress today, House and Senate, that came up with this concept and have been pushing it for many, many years. They're our champions in Congress. However, the Congress has gotten so... <laughs> well, well, I wanted to ask you about that because that well, half century ago, 1973, the bill passed with near unanimous support, and 98% right. of the species protected under the Act have avoided extinction. So right. that would seem like a great success. Isn't everybody jumping on board to make it even stronger and to solidify the strength of the states in implementing it? Why are they not? Well, the big problem within the Congress and the big debate ever since it was introduced is, well, where does the money come from, the $1.4 billion per year? Under the the way the federal government works to fund its acts, its appropriations, is they try to find an offset, a source for money, rather than coming out of the general treasury. And originally, they were going to tax, put a more excise tax increase it excise tax on offshore oil and gas. Well, that lobby group got together and said, no way. Don't, don't put another, don't, don't increase our taxes. And so they, 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 the Congress began to look for other sources and they're still looking. They've, they've had several, many ideas created, but none have gotten through yet. Uh, and the, why Debbie Dingle and, and Martin, in addition to the fact that they're the champions for this, uh, John Dingle, Debbie's uh, husband, uh, who's now, uh, God bless him, deceased, um, was the leader in 1966, 69, and 73 uh, to create the Endangered Species Act. He was he was the mm, the prime mover way back then. 
And yeah, he was a giant. He was a giant within yeah. the house. Let me ask you, we're in the midst of a biodiversity crisis, and we hear lots of reports about species that are dying yeah, off, dying. and they're in decline, and it's accelerating at an alarming rate. We've got a combination of things going on, climate change, habitat loss, invasive species, diseases and pollution that have created these consequences. So this would seem like a moment in time for Congress to restate its commitment to this very successful endangered species group that is now only growing in America under the stress, particularly, I would think, but you can correct me on this, of climate change. It's a combination of man's continued abuse of the earth and the uses that they put put on the earth in timbering and logging, mining, and other um, uh, extractions, uh, especially oil and gas. But I'm glad you mentioned this biodiversity issue. And just for your listeners, let me define what that means because yes. it leaves so many people uh, like, what the heck is that? Biodiversity is a very simple concept. It, 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 the biodiversity community is all living species on the globe, all living species, whether it's, whether it's an animal, plant, insect, a fish, amphibian, a reptile, a snake, an ant, or man. He is just one of the many species alive on Earth. And the biodiversity community sustains man. It provides him with food, clothing, shelter, and drugs. Fifty percent of our drugs come from nature, from plants and animals. Okay. That's what the biodiversity means. And if you can picture a big green balloon, a big green balloon, just, just picture that for the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every species that dies or goes extinct lets a little air out of that balloon. Eventually what will happen is when all of the air is gone, it'll, it'll just fall to the floor. Man will be part of that demise. That's why it is so, so important that the public understands our biodiversity is in crisis. We have a biodiversity crisis today, and it's a combination of man's assault on the earth over the years, but also now exacerbated terribly by climate change. What animal can outrun a fast-moving fire? Or what bird? Or, you know, what what brown, you know, like a squirrel or something like that? What can outrun a fast-moving fire? or get out of the way of a hurricane or a cyclone or a a, a flood that washes away from the banks of a a major river and just just inundates farms and fields and and open space and forests. Uh, Birds, ground-nesting birds, they're just totally destroyed along with other species. That's that's what climate change... Well, Dr. Baer, with all of our intellect and all the structures we've built around us to protect us, we're not even protected from no. the, uh, you know, inclement uh, aspects of all this or the heat that is so devastating. It's driving people north. I mean, if people wonder why yes. it is so many people are going to be trying to get into the United States, you haven't seen anything yet. Now, let me ask you this. The next half century 
According to the law that uh, Debbie Dingell and Martin Heimrich want to pass, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, would invest in preventative and rehabilitative care, uh, both upstream to save at-risk species before they're on the brink of extinction and to accelerate the recovery of species already listed. Do we have time for this, or are we already too late? We're not too late, and I'm glad you mentioned that because part of those monies are used upstream to catch an animal that may be going into crisis but has not been listed. And that's what collaboration is all about, is pre-listing work to save those species before they even get to the point of listing. Are are we too late? It's never too late, at least in this century. But we've got to get on with it. We cannot diddle around and ignore uh, climate change and ignore the biodiversity crisis. And we've got to wake, work, wake up the American public up, up to understand this and talk to their congressmen and senators and say, why aren't you doing anything about it? Stop fighting and deal with it, with the issues that are going to haunt our future generations. Well, I still see a lot of politicians in denial that it's even real, and that uh, vexes me to no end. The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, the next 50 years, edited by our guests today, Lowell Baer, Dr. John Organ, and Christopher Siegel, with contributions from a host of really talented and uh, informed people on this topic. Again, I cannot thank you enough for being with us today. If somebody is motivated by what it is you've had to say today, what's the best thing they can do? Pick out one of the of the major groups that are out there on the forefront dealing with, with these various issues that I've talked about, such as National Wildlife Federation, the Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, which is a little bit in crisis right now, but other major groups that are dealing with these issues and support them. Talk to their congressmen. That's what they can do. But but understand and talk to their neighbors and their friends about this biodiversity crisis and, and get the word out there. That's what they can do. I want to thank you very much. Larry, yes. do, do I have another 30 seconds? Sure, of course. Well, let me let me be the first to, to tell your listeners, listeners, let you and your listeners be the first to hear about Volume 3. Oh, okay. My my publisher said, after going through Volumes 1 and 2, these are pretty pretty dense uh, texts. Could you write one that's an abridgment of these, but really that's more oriented to the layman? And And I didn't want to do it, but the more I wrote, the more I began to realize how much I left out because I couldn't put in the human the human element, the human stories of the last 50 years. And Volume 3, which is coming out on, on April 22nd of next year, which is Earth Day, is filled with the human interest side, uh, human interest side of that 50 years. And it's got murder, suicide, sex, drugs, um, and all of the titillating things <laughs> that, 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 that people get, get, you know, read about. But, uh, it's, it's coming out next year, and, and I must say, the, the publisher called me after he took it home for the weekend. He called me Monday morning and said, I can't believe this. Hmm. He, said, he said, I can't. I, I started reading it uh, Saturday morning over my coffee, and I couldn't put it down. So I hope your readers pick that up next year and read Oh, it. absolutely. We'll have you back again. Uh, we'd love to Thank have you. you.
Well, thank yeah. you so much for being with us today here on America Trends. We really appreciate it. And uh, we do hope that there's some forward momentum generated on behalf of the Endangered Species Act and its uh, successor. It's very important. Thanks again, Dr. Baer, for being with us. Thank you, Larry.